Welcome to Basecamp, where men join together to seek deeper understanding of authentic manhood and apply principles from God's Word to our daily lives. If you're looking for the next level in men's ministry, join us and experience a life of Christian fellowship with men sold out for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May God be praised. All right, good morning. All right, we're going to jump in. This has been uh, so exciting because we're going to continue on with our We Believe series, and we're jumping into eternal life and Jesus' imminent return. And this is great because especially after last week's uh, message from Pastor Alex Rowley, why is this so awesome? Why are we so expecting it? Because the bad news is so bad, right? It's so good because the bad news is so bad. What's the bad news? The bad news is that moment sin entered the world, death entered also. And death is that thing. It's inescapable, right? It's certain. It's ubiquitous. Everybody's going to suffer from it, right? And not just us, but the people that we love. And I got to tell you, after being on the call for a little while, it started off where we were praying about COVID. And now we've been praying about people losing loved ones. It's been tough. And some of y'all were praying there um, before. We were praying for Molly. We were praying for uh, uh, people losing their parents, people losing kids. And gentlemen, I got to tell you, I'm tired of it. I can't wait for the day when Jesus comes back and puts death to death. I'm tired of it, right? When he comes back to make all things new. I got to tell you, man, I'm ready. I'm ready today for this, right? Okay. So we've got a reason to be excited about this. So this is taken directly from the BCC website. And I want to read it word for word because this is important. This is an expression of exactly what we believe. And then we'll go into why we believe it. But eternal life is a relationship that begins at the moment of salvation, continues forever. And eternal life is knowing the one true God the living God, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent, the great end which Christianity sets before us is the joy of eternal life in the knowledge and the presence of God, of the eternal God. And whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. When the Holy Spirit indwells the new believer at the moment of salvation... He imparts this eternal life to the believer. And even though all physically die, God will ultimately resurrect believers in glorified bodies that are incorruptible, without sin, without decay, without illness, without pain, without death, finally perfected for eternal life. I got to tell you, that's good news. But it gets better. Okay, we also believe that Jesus Christ will come again personally, visibly, bodily. And here's the best part. To consummate all history and fulfill the eternal plan of God the Father. Gentlemen, the whole story starts with God speaking the entire universe, speaking time into existence with a word. And here's the cool part. Boom! At the pivot. 
We reckon all time. I don't care if you're an animist, if you're an atheist, if you're a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Muslim, it doesn't matter. You reckon every single day of your life on earth as either being before Christ or Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. And you can change it up. You can call it the common era or the before the common era, nonsense like that. But guess what? Same date. Same date. It's all built off of Jesus came at this time. Your entire life is reckoned as being a certain distance from that or a certain distance before it. That's it. And here's the exciting part. It's bookended with his return. That's history. It really is his story and it really is all about him. And the fact of Jesus' return, the fact, the historical fact, it's a historical fact from God's perspective of his return is certain. Okay? Even though no man knows the day, no man knows the hour, but the scriptures declare that when Jesus returns to the earth in glory, every eye will see him and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we Christians are to be about the Father's business and to maintain an attitude of expectancy until then. Woo! Right? This stuff sells itself, gentlemen, right? If you can't get excited about that, we're going to have to check your pulse, right? We got some first aid. We got some of like those defib stations over there. There's an AED right next to the, to the fire extinguisher, okay? We'll get you back to life, okay? But you know what's really exciting to me is the entire Bible. These aren't select passages. The whole Bible is saturated with these two thoughts. One, that we would live forever, designed for it. Right? And two, that we would see our Savior once again in the flesh standing on the earth. Now, the funny part is, the earliest place that we see this is in the book of Job. The book, Job, book of Job is the, old, uh, the oldest written book in the Bible, right? Oldest in terms of when it's written, not the material it covers. Obviously, that would be Genesis, right? But what does he say? It starts off with chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 11, where Job suffers everything possible except for death. Terrible disease. His, fam his kids are killed. His wealth is completely gone. Then he goes for the next 30-some-odd uh, chapters until we get to just before chapter 38. And he is wrestling. He is admitting his frustration with his suffering and with God. Trying to understand why do bad things happen to good people and why does God allow it? And then obviously God shows up there in, verse, in chapter 38 and starts having a direct conversation with his servant. But the best part is this. Right in the middle. Right? in the middle of his frustration in the first 38 chapters, right there in chapter 19, 25 to 27, Job makes this statement. I know my Redeemer lives. I don't think he lives. I don't suspect he lives. I know my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not some other. The oldest book in the Bible talks about this thing. It's gonna happen. It's basically a historical fact from God's perspective. And it saturates the entire Bible. And I gotta tell you, 
This is good news for Christians because we believe that literally once we're crucified with Christ, once we accept death with him, that we from that moment on start living with him. That's a good thing, right? Okay, so what is eternal life? It starts off, it's a relationship. John chapter 17 verses two through three, it says that for you have granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the one true and only God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And the great end that Christianity sets before us is this. If you want to know what it looks like, it's eternity and the knowledge and the presence of God, the God that loves you. You know, I had this uh, 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 professor, uh, Walter E. Williams, genius uh, economist over at George Mason. He says, you know the best way to tell how much something's worth it's not the appraised value. Maybe somebody would buy it for that value. Maybe they wouldn't. It's the price the last person paid for. The price the last person paid for. What was the last price paid for you? Right? And you're going to go live with that God that would pay any price for you? I got to tell you, that's good news. Right? But with the good news has to come the bad news. The good news wouldn't be good otherwise. And what's that bad news? That bad news is that whoever rejects the Son will not see life. This is important, I think, in the phraseology. And his wrath remains on him. Two ideas. One, that means whatever this is that we call life isn't actually the full manifestation of life. It's a shadow in the same way that all the worship in the temple, right, and in the sanctuary were shadows we would be settling for a shadow of what God wants for us if we accepted this life as the end all beat all. And the second part is that we don't enter into sin. We're in it. Our, his wrath is on us today, right? And so I had to be disabused of an of a incorrect way of displaying this. So Jim Neighbors took me aside a, a while ago and was like, dog, you're, you're, you're painting it like we're on this middle road and there's a fork in the road out front that says hell and it says heaven. And hell is always to the left, by the way. And so when you come up there, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> and you come up there and then you make a decision later. And he's like, that's not the case. It's the interstate to hell, right? And we're all on it. We're on it. And if you don't get off of it, you stay on it. And you end up in the ultimate destination that you're already heading toward. Now, some of us are in the HOV lane, right? <laughs> some of us are getting there a little faster. So we work a little harder. The rest of us, we're stuck on the 66 of hell, right? Right? And we're, we're still making good steady progress. It's just stop and go, right? Okay, but every now and then, all the way through along this path, there's exits that we can take and get off of this road. But if we don't get off of it, you're on it, obviously, until you reach your ultimate destination. And that's the great, that is the single great tragedy of existence. So said another way, the moment that we are conceived, we start dying, right? We're given in a lot of number of days, Psalm 139, I know all the days ordained for me were already written in your book before the first one came to be, that the moment that we exist, we are under a curse. The moment that we sin, that we begin to die every single day until the clock runs out. Then what happens? We physically die and then we reach the full manifestation of that death, spiritual death, later on. 
But there's a way that we can circumvent all this. And what is that? That's we can be crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. For I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And we live that kind of a life. And what is that kind of life? It's spiritual, eternal life, right? And we can start living it today. We don't wait. We don't be like, oh, honey, I'm waiting for heaven. No, dog, we're starting today, right? We're starting to live that day. And here's the thing that excites me the most about just this like graphic depiction. If you look down there in the bottom of it, where the blue and the red come together, you are dying every day. And that's what he says in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Every day we waste away physically. And every day we're renewed inwardly, spiritually. We live a new level, a new portion, a new amount of spiritual eternal life every single day, even as we watch this body absolutely deteriorate, which I'm experiencing right now. Okay. So this is exciting, but every now and then we get a couple people that just get it a little earlier. They're not your ASVAB waiver. You know, like I was an ASVAB waiver. I waited. Okay. But you get some people that get it a little earlier (laughs) and they just get off. They take the earlier exit, right? And they start living earlier. Then you got people like me or like my dad who waited later, took on a little more suffering, right? Only get to experience the combination of physical and spiritual life for a shorter period of time, but they still got saved. Gentlemen, I'm begging you. If you're in this room right now and you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ and you haven't made that exit or you're not even sure, please, I'm begging you, don't walk out of this room without doing it. I'm telling you, you've never run into, in my opinion, a group of men who love Jesus Christ more. Find one of these guys, surrender to Christ, and start living. Stop waiting. Stop waiting, okay? But that's, not the, but that's not all. It's like one of those infomercials. And that, if that weren't enough, right, we, we get to see Jesus Christ face to face, right? His return is certain. Hebrews 9.28, it says that he will return a second time. Mark 8.38, it says that when he comes in his Father's glory. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says on the day he returns. And there's countless other ones. The point is, the Bible doesn't use probabilistic language about this. It doesn't use contingent language. It doesn't say almost certainly will. It doesn't say that he may or could or might. He will return. This is as far as God is concerned, a historical fact, as much as when he came the first time. The second part, he will return. He will return personally, visibly, bodily, and triumphantly this time, right? This is awesome. So he returns personally. What is it? Revelation chapter 22, or sorry, uh, yeah, 22, 12. And he says, behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. And I will give to every man according to what he's done. Gentlemen, he could hardly reward you personally at different variegated levels if he doesn't know you intimately. The second part, he's going to return visibly. Acts, or sorry, uh, Revelation 1-7. It says that he comes with the clouds and every eye will see him. Then Matthew 24, 26 through 27, he says, as the lightning is visible in the east, is visible also in the west, so it will be the coming of the Son of Man. He will return bodily. Acts 1-11. So it says, uh, the angel speaking, this same Jesus who has been taken away from you into heaven will come back to you 
the same way you saw him go into heaven. And yes, that speaks of his ascension and so his descension, but it also speaks of the form. We know that he existed after the resurrection in bodily form. We know that doubting Thomas comes in there and says, I won't believe it till I touch him, till I put my hand and finger in his, in his hand and I put my hand in his side. And what does Jesus say? Roger that, right? Like, come on, put your finger in there. Put your hand in my side. This is a physical, bodily Jesus Christ, not a figment of our imagination, not a figurative lesson. This is a king who's coming, who will stand on the earth. And when he comes, brothers, he's coming triumphantly. He came the first time as a little baby, harmless. He says, I come meek and I come mild, gentle, riding on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. He says, a bruised reed he would not break. Isaiah 53, it says, he was a man of sorrows. Familiar with suffering, like one from men who hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's not the way he's returning, gentlemen. He's coming back, and it tells us there in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, he'll descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. Gentlemen, our king is coming back, and we're waiting. The only thing is, we don't know exactly when he's going to return. Acts 1, verses 6 through 7, it says, It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed of his own authority. Matthew 24. But of that day, no man knows the hour. No, not even the angels in heaven. Matthew 24 to 44. So you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come, will come at an hour you don't expect. Now, I got to tell you, if God says he's going to come at an hour you don't expect, here's another way to say this. Whatever hour you expect, he won't come, right? So if you're sitting down and like, oh, he's definitely coming here, I can guarantee that's the time he won't come. Whatever that time is that you've said he'll probably come, I can guarantee that ain't it, whatever that is, right? Okay, <laughs> which is kind of comforting to me as a jarhead. Okay, Matthew 25. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to watch, therefore. Hebrews 10, 37. He says, he, in a little while, he will come. He won't tarry. Gentlemen, he's not tarrying. He is fast at work. All things are working toward this day. And they're not ticking by. They're rushing forward. Rushing forward. And I got to tell you, he, Jesus himself says, behold, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming soon. And if he said that 2,000 years ago, how much closer are we today than we were back then, right? All right. But what is he waiting for? Right? And this is where the story gets a little sad. Because the good news couldn't be so good if the bad news really wasn't that bad. And it starts there in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. It says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. And the, son, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. And you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work 2,000 years ago. But the one who holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will, Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The great tragedy here is all this unity that we were looking for, all this unity in diversity that we were looking for will finally happen, except they will only coalesce around one thing. They will 
worship Satan. All the non-believers will worship Satan and hate God. I got to tell you, that's a tragedy for someone who knows him. How could you hate him? How is that, thing, how is that possible? Here's the other great terror. Consider what the rapture will be like. Whether you consider the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, or after. I just ask you to consider what would it look like if the police officers who enforce the law, all the Christian police officers, or all the police officers who even just live by Christian principles are removed and become predators. All the politicians, all the governing officials, everybody in the government that is either a Christian or lives by Christian principles is removed and becomes predatory. If every businessman, if every intelligence officer, if every military officer is removed who loves Jesus Christ or lives by Christian principles, what would this place look like? I can tell you from personal experience, in Iraq, we got a sniper turned over to us who shot two of our Marines. And a lot of fighting still going on. It'd be easy just for him to add one more pile. But he was alive. And there's only a few of my Marines standing around him. And they're looking at me like, they didn't say anything, but they were very clear, what do you want to do? And you know, for that, that very short period of time, I thought, what's one more? We got plenty around here. And you know what the first verse that came in my mind was? If your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in so doing, you'll pile burning coals on his head. Gentlemen, what would it look like if we take all that out of the world? All that restraint. That's what the world looks like. Sin is absolutely, and wickedness is unchecked. This is the world Jesus returns to. But this is kind of exciting too, even in that. Because the same Jesus returns, but he got a different role this time, right? Which is kind of exciting to me anyway. So Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 21. I saw heaven open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a white in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe, And on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all all people, slave and free, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. That's, that's heavy stuff, gentlemen. So when Jesus returns, there's some are gonna be overjoyed and some are gonna be terrified. And what's clear is it says in Philippians 2, verses 10 through 11, 
says that at the name of Jesus Christ, every, uh, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some are overjoyed. Hebrews 9, 28, it says clearly that he will appear a second time, not to bear sin this time, but to bring salvation to everybody waiting for him. Good news. I'm ready. Some people will not be happy, right? It says Revelation 1. It says, every eye will see him, and they which pierced him, all the kindreds of the earth shall wail and mourn because of him. Psalm 110, 5 through 6, says, The Lord is at your right hand, and he will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Gentlemen, this story ends up with you on your knees. It's your choice how you get there. You can get on your knees as someone who worships and loves Jesus Christ and wants to be with him. It's committed to him and loves him. Or you can be forced there as a defeated foe. Please, gentlemen, let's get there on our knees voluntarily. What are we supposed to do until then? If you forgot everything else, this is what your marching orders are. So you might want to pay attention to this part. <laughs> okay, I put those in your notes so you can review them. Okay, but 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. It says, let the Lord direct your heart and patiently wait. It is difficult to patiently wait when you see sin and injustice and wickedness and suffering. God awful, terrible suffering. That's real, gentlemen. It's, this suffering is real. Titus 2, 13. We look forward, we're supposed to be looking forward for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4, 7. Be ye therefore sober and watch under prayer. Gentlemen, when it says sober, I don't think he only means the sober from drinking and drugs. I mean, we're not medicating and killing time with pornography or politics or the stock market, or your career, trying to sedate yourself to kill time until he returns. But we're supposed to be actively doing something else, and what is that? Praying. I mean, it's that simple. It can't, prayer can't be that simple, can it? It really can. Now, whether it's by yourself or corporately, it says pray without ceasing. And my wife gets on my case about taking things a little too literally sometimes, right? But this is one of those times, as close to, to continuously as possible, that's our goal. A life defined by that. Constant conversation with the living God. Revelation 3.11. We're also told to hold fast to that which you have. And I picture this as an infantryman sitting in a fighting hole. All of his comrades got up and ran away, and there's a human wave of enemy attacking him. And he's decided one thing. I may not take a lot of terrain. But I'm not giving this up. That's our job. Hold fast. And how do we do it? What's the only way we can do it? 1 John 28, it says, abide in him as you see the day approaching. Gentlemen, what I mean by that is we need some desperate men. Men that can't do this on their own. But for Jesus Christ, eat, sleep, breathe, drink, live in Christ. Where you realize, I can't do it. When you come to that point, you're in the safest place you've ever been when you've run out of you. So we need to abide in him. And then corporately, what do we do? Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Do not give up meeting together as some in their habit are doing, 
but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. That's really, honestly, that's what this is about. Michael Coffey told us, you guys are all right teachers. No one came here to listen to you. <laughs> they came here for the table time to spur each other on to love and good deeds. Gentlemen, don't let this be the only time you get together with other men. And please, let's take a note out of Jay Harriet's book. That dude will text you at all hours of the day like, happy Thursday, or how can I pray for you? That's it. Just encouraging each other. It's a good start. And then the last part here is 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 through 3, or 3, verse 2 through 3. It says, as he comes back, we don't know exactly what he will be when he reappears, but we know this. Every man that has this hope purifies himself, even as Jesus is pure. And what does that mean? It just means this. If something is pure, it's got one ingredient. That's all that makes it pure. That's it. We just want to get rid of all the other ingredients out of us. There's only space for one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. Okay? Okay. And this is the most asbestos news. I saved it for the end. Right? Jesus said, I go away to prepare a place for you. Oh! Woo! I mean, if he can build the world, I can only imagine the place he can build for me. Right? And he said, if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again. That where I am, you may also be. Woo! I, I like that. And then the last part, this is what we say. Revelation 22, 20, he says, Behold, I come quickly. Amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen, 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 and amen. Here are your questions, gentlemen. I love you guys. And let me pray for us as we get done here. Lord, I just pray that you'd be with us, that you would indwell us with your spirit, that you would saturate us with the knowledge of you, Lord, that you would burden us that you would abide in us, that you would show us our desperation, our complete inability to take another breath, another step without you. Make us desperate men, men that are so desperate that we literally wait in, in impatient, impatiently for your coming, but at work, spurring each other on, winning people to Christ, that we don't ourselves want to have to experience the bad news, and we don't want those that we love to experience it and that we're at work until you show up again doing that. I pray that we'd be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. I pray that you bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. One for all. 